You can keep your Bibles open there at Revelation chapter 4, studying this morning the whole of chapter 4 and thinking about the throne of heaven, the throne of heaven. When human beings go through times of crisis, when we experience things that confuse us, anger us, shake us, cause us grief, stress, what often helps us to cope in those times is a change of perspective. That is to to stop thinking about your situation only one particular way and to start to think about it another way if possible. A change of perspective can help us at least to learn to live with some of our problems or challenges if not completely solve them. The entire human race experienced a profound change of perspective on the 14th of August 1959 when Explorer 6 sent back the first images of planet Earth from outer space. This was the first time that human beings had ever seen the whole planet Earth fit into one photograph. As one preacher has said, think about how long human beings walked on this Earth, looked up at the stars, and imagined what must be out there. And then think about the first time human beings had the opportunity to look at the Earth from an entirely different perspective. Revelation chapter 4 entirely changes our perspective. In the first three chapters of the book, as I've been saying, we have this vision of Jesus, which is glorious and and an awesome sight. Uh, And then we have the the letters to the seven churches. Uh, And the letters are very much down to earth. As we saw earlier this year, they get get into the the nitty-gritty, everyday ordinary struggles of the people in those churches. Jesus speaks to them about their struggles, about their mistakes, and about the heavenly rewards waiting for them if they remain faithful to him. But having spoken to the churches on earth uh, and shown that Jesus understands exactly their situation on earth, (coughs) Jesus now changes our perspective. He gets our eyes off the, the situation, the immediate situation of our lives on earth. And he fixes our eyes, friends, on the throne of heaven. And we begin to see our lives and our churches and our world and even heaven and hell from this perspective for the rest of the book. This is the perspective that we'll be keeping, not just this week, but in the weeks to come. Seeing our lives, seeing our world from the perspective of the throne of heaven. And I want you to appreciate today as we begin that every word we read in Revelation from here onwards, it is still intended to help small, struggling, imperfect churches on earth. I said this earlier this year, but I'll say it again. Revelation is not just a book for people who want to, you know, get all caught up in academic study and uh, and, and figure out the future and, and do as some people have done and mistakenly start predicting dates for when Jesus will come back. Revelation is not a book just to uh, tickle the fancy of people who want to figure out all these mysteries and who want to equate certain world events with certain prophecies in the book of Revelation. Revelation, friends, is a book to encourage, to help, and to change the perspective of ordinary Christian men and women and boys and girls the church on earth. 
It's a book in which we glimpse the glory of God in heaven. Yes, at times we even have glimpses of the future given to us in Revelation. But ultimately, friends, it is a book to encourage the church on earth as we think about the throne of heaven and the one who sits upon it. So, first of all today, we're going to think about the one seated on the throne, and then we'll think about the significance of the throne. So, first of all, the one seated on the throne. Uh, notice verse 2, uh, Paul, or John rather, says, uh, or sorry, verse 1, Behold, a door standing open in heaven. And then verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. The word throne is used more than 60 times in the New Testament, and half of those times are here in the book of Revelation. More than half those times, in fact, in the book of Revelation. Of all the times it's used in Revelation, about half of those are here in chapters 4 and 5. So the throne, friends, is central. The throne is the most important thing that we're to take notice of here in this chapter. Everything else revolves around the throne. We sometimes say, don't we, so-and-so thinks the world revolves around them. I wonder if you ever come home from work and said that about a colleague to your spouse. They think the world revolves around them. Or maybe sometimes exasperated parents say it to their children, the world doesn't revolve around you, you know. Again, think of the, the situations of the people in the seven churches that are addressed earlier in the book. Uh, for them, really, the world was under the, under the power, the throne of the Roman Empire. And we saw in chapters 2 and 3 some of the pressures that those churches were coming under because of the rule, the reign, the throne of Rome. Well, Jesus says to John here, look, there is another throne, a throne above, beyond, more powerful than all the thrones of earth, the most significant throne in the universe, the throne of heaven, and one seated on this throne. And the visions and, and the pictures and the symbols that we have here in Revelation chapter 4, friends, uh, they teach us four things about the one seated on this throne. Uh, first of all, we see here in this vision the glory of the one seated on the throne, the glory of God. Verse 2 says that there was one seated on the throne, and the language in the original uh, emphasizes that the one seated on the throne is always seated on the throne. He never moves, he never changes. Old age isn't going to result in this person leaving their throne. His enemies aren't going to come and take him off his throne. He isn't going to make some terrible blunder, misjudgment, that means he loses his throne. The one on this throne is always seated on this throne. And the one seated on this throne is glorious. Look at what John says in verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance. John doesn't say, doesn't, notice John doesn't actually describe the appearance of God. He couldn't have seen the, the full glory of God. But he says he had, he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne, he says, was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So notice he keeps using that word, the appearance of. One writer says, in our sinful fallen state, 
No human being can gaze on God in his undiminished glory and majesty and live no one. And so instead, John says he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Uh, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 28, uh, we're told that the high priest of Israel, when he went in to serve God in the tabernacle, part of, part of the clothing that he had to wear was a breastplate. He'd wear this thing on his chest and it had 12 beautiful gemstones on it, precious stones. One of, uh, the, the 12 of them represented the 12 tribes of Israel, all God's people. The first of the gems on the breastplate was a jasper stone. And the last one was carnelian, the two that John mentions here in Revelation. Jasper is so transparent that when light hits it and it passes through it, uh, the full spectrum of colors can, be, can, can appear if, if light is uh, focused upon a jasper stone. Carnelian is opaque, but when light hits carnelian, it gives off these brilliant hues of red light. And so friends, brilliant, dazzling, beautiful light is what John sees as he looks at this throne. Glorious light, light that is almost too much for the eyes to take in. We read our, we, the call to worship this morning was Psalm 104. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. This light, friends, is a picture of the glory, the, 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 uh, the dazzling glory of God that is too much for human eyes to take in. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light. And so this throne is to teach us about the glory of God. But this throne also teaches us something of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. We'll come back to that. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven torches of fire and seven spirits. That's a reference to Zechariah chapter 4, where Zechariah gets a vision of a golden lampstand from the Jerusalem temple, which had seven uh, candlesticks on it. Seven lampstands, I should say. The number seven, as I've said before, is a very important number, not just in Revelation, but in the whole of Scripture. Seven is the, the number of completion or of perfection. And so the seven torches of fire, the seven spirits of God, that's a way of describing the perfect, sovereign, eternal power of God, particularly God the Holy Spirit here. You remember at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church uh, and Luke says in Acts chapter 2 verse 3 that something like tongues of fire fell upon all the people, not actual fire, but something that looked like fire. And that was symbolic of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so what it's saying here, friends, is that the God, the Holy Spirit, is sovereign. He is everywhere present. He knows all things. He sees all things. He is in complete control. Not only that, but verse 6 says, Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal, uh, and again, the sea is an important symbol all through the Bible. Uh, often the sea is a picture of chaos or threat or danger for God's people. 
The Mediterranean Sea was the, the western border of the promised land. It was like the age of the world as far as God's people were concerned. You think of the Red Sea, which almost became the grave of God's people, except that God parted it and saved them from the Egyptians. And so the sea ordinarily is is a threatening place, a dangerous place for God's people in the Bible. But notice, friends, that this sea before the throne could also be translated under the throne is like glass. In other words, it's perfectly still. It's not in chaos. There's no threat or danger from this sea. It is perfectly at peace, perfectly still. It is under the control of the one who is seated on the throne. He is sovereign over everything. Teaches us about the sovereignty of God. Teaches us about the glory of God. The throne also is here to teach us about the judgment of God. The judgment of God. If you look again at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. You're going to see those words every so often all the way through the book of Revelation. Flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And every time those words appear, they appear before an act of judgment from God. It's a warning. It's like sounding the alarm that judgment is coming. And so we're being told here, before those acts of judgment come, we're being told where they come from. They come from the one seated on the throne. Our God, friends, is a God of judgment. When God's people prepared to meet with him at Mount Sinai, they heard the same things as John hears here in Revelation. Exodus 19 verse 16, thunders and lightnings. And you remember God told the Israelites, no one must touch the mountain. Not even an animal is allowed to go up on the mountain. You will die instantly as the presence of God and the power of God comes down on the mountain to meet with his people. And the same message goes out from the throne of heaven and the one seated on the throne. He is a God of judgment. He is a God who is not to be taken lightly. He is a God who will pour out his wrath On the sin of this world. Perhaps some of you here today or or listening in today need to consider more carefully that the God who made you, the God who decides whether you get another breath, who sits enthroned over the world, is also a God of judgment who will judge you. Someday you will stand before the one seated on this throne. And when you do, one of two things will happen. Either the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom you have trusted in your life for the forgiveness of your sins, either he will speak and he will say, this man, this woman, this boy, this girl belongs to me and will be with me forever. Or Jesus will say, I never knew this person. Depart from me into eternal punishment when thunder and lightning will be the least of your worries. The one seated on the throne is a God of judgment. What judgment is he going to pronounce on you? And then the last thing that this picture of the throne teaches us about, friends, is the grace of God. The grace of God, not just his judgment, but his grace. Look again at verse 3. 
He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne <coughs> excuse me <coughs> around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And again, an emerald being a stone that gives off particularly brilliant and dazzling light. But notice, friends, there is a rainbow all the way around this throne. Boys and girls, I'm sure some of you during lockdown, uh, you probably drew pictures of rainbows. A lot of people did uh, during the first lockdown. And you you stuck them up on the wall in your house or maybe up in your window. Uh, And if it's been raining and you go outside with your mum or your dad, uh, the best type of rainbow to see is one that goes all the way from one side to the other. Sometimes you just see a bit of a rainbow. It's just a, just a wee section of a rainbow, but it's always the best if you can see a rainbow. You can see where it starts and you can see where it ends all the way across. Well, boys and girls and everyone else as well, uh, this rainbow that John sees in heaven, it doesn't just go from there to there. It goes all the way around the throne. This rainbow is, is a circle, if you like, all the way around the throne of heaven. And so if we can say with reverence, friends, and of course this is all picture language, but in whichever direction God turns from his throne, he sees the rainbow. And what does that rainbow remind us of? Well, it reminds us, of course, of God's promise to Noah in Genesis chapter 9 that he will never again destroy the whole world with one flood. But it also reminds us, friends, of the grace that God provided to Noah and his family, that he saved them from the flood, from the judgment. So friends, what these pictures, and again, they are only pictures, but what they are telling us is that from the same throne comes judgment and grace. The God who judges sin is the same God who has provided a means of escape from that judgment. He's done that for you and I today, not by providing us with a wooden ark, but by providing his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we'll see this evening, Jesus Christ can come to this throne and is worthy to receive all the authority and power of this throne because he is God. And the rainbow around this throne reminds us that Jesus Christ is our better ark, that as the ark protected Noah and his family from the pouring down of the rain, So Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross and his resurrection, protects us from the pouring out of God's wrath upon upon the sin of this world. We can be saved from the judgment we deserve. That's what's pictured for us here, friends, in the rainbow surrounding this throne. So here is the throne of God pictured for us in this vision. It's a throne that speaks to us of God's glory, of his sovereignty, his judgment, and his grace. So we've thought about the one seated on the throne. uh, But lastly, today, we want to think about the significance of this throne. Why does this throne matter for us, earthbound followers of Jesus? We can't see this throne with our physical eyes today. We can't just shoot up to heaven and have a look at it. We have to go by what we're taught here in God's word. But why does it matter that this glorious throne (coughs) exists in heaven? Well, friends, knowing about the glory and the sovereignty and the judgment and the grace of this throne, it should change our perspective. It should change our perspective, and it should change our perspective in at least two ways. 
First, it should fill us with comfort. It should fill us with comfort to know about the one seated on this throne. Again, think about the struggles that were facing the churches that we thought about in Revelation chapters 2 to 3. Remember Ephesus, for example. Ephesus was a congregation that knew their doctrine, knew what God's Word taught, knew it inside out, but they had lost their love. Uh, they, They had a head knowledge of God's Word, but they didn't have any love for one another or for their world or for their Savior. Pergamum was a church putting up with false teaching. They had allowed people to come in and start uh, preaching and teaching things that were just not true. It wasn't what the Bible said. Smyrna was suffering the first signs of persecution. People were beginning to get attacked for simply being Christians. They were losing their jobs. They were losing respect. They were losing their loved ones. Almost all of the church's friends were facing pressure from the trade guilds. Remember I told you a little bit about these guilds. They were something like a trade union uh, and, and a pagan religion rolled into one. And you had to pay into your guild. Your family was part of the guild. Your pension plan was in the guild. But also the guilds demanded that before your annual general meeting, you offer up a sacrifice to some pagan god, Zeus or Diana or someone. And so the temptation for Christians who were part of these guilds was how do I be a Christian and also be a member of my guild Uh, can I not compromise is it not okay if I if I worship these gods whatever day of the week the guild is meeting and then go along to worship the true God with my church family on the Lord's day is it really realistic to hold on to my Christian principles when so many people around me disagree when people are making demands of me and Uh, People who are in such more powerful positions than me are saying that this is how I need to live my life. But you see, friends, here we have such great comfort for people in those positions. That above the throne of Rome, or above the the throne of the guilds, or above the, the throne of whoever it was that was making life difficult for Christians, there is the throne of heaven. And the one seated on that throne is unchanging and all-powerful, and sees everything, and knows everything, and will judge everything when the time comes. And what looks like chaos to us on earth is a sea of glass beneath his feet. I wonder, does that not bring you comfort today as well in whatever struggles you're facing? Those of you with long-term illness or your loved one has the long-term illness, Those of you making big decisions about your work and your family. Those of you contemplating huge, important life turns and changes. Does it not bring immense comfort to know that your Father, your Father in heaven is on his throne? That our shepherd and saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, is on his throne? That the unquenchable, unchangeable Holy Spirit whom Christ has sent to his people from this throne, fills us and will help us and encourage us. We look out at our world and we see our leaders wringing their hands about climate change. 
If we don't act now, it will be too late, they say. And without, without denying that, that, that human beings have done an awful amount of damage to our planet, how foolish those leaders have been these past couple of weeks not to so much as mention the existence of the creator of this planet and to seek his help and, and to consult his word and to ask for his grace in what we seek to do. We look at the power of those who have almost obliterated respect for the Lord's day. The laws that have been passed in our country that make gambling or drunkenness or sexual immorality just casual parts of everyday life. Those who want to compel Christians to say this or stop saying that, we might be tempted to despair when we see the the level of opposition and disagreement against us. Friends, we have to keep this perspective. There is a throne above the thrones of political power or social media influence or big tech or whatever the threat may be. There's one seated on heaven's throne who is surrounded in glorious light, who will wield judgment when and how he sees fit, who always acts in gracious loving care for his people. Look at this awesome throne today, dear friends, and be filled with comfort. But not only does this heavenly throne fill us with comfort, the final thing to say today is this heavenly throne should fuel our worship. It should fuel our worship. Verse 6 says that surrounding the throne there are four living creatures. Again, notice that John can only say what they look like rather than what they actually are. But he says one looks like a lion, another like an ox, one has the face of a human man, one looks like a flying eagle. They're covered in wings and eyes. I think, what is this all about? (laughs) These four strange-sounding creatures. Well, again, notice an important number is mentioned, the number four this time, four creatures. And the number four in Revelation is symbolic of the whole world, north, south, east, and west, the four corners we we sometimes say of the earth, even though the earth's a globe, but we talk about four corners. Uh, And these creatures, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle, They symbolize all of God's creation. Uh, The birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and so on. How does God's creation respond to the one seated on the throne? We'll look at verse 8. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Creation, friends, is designed to give unceasing worship to God. God is in control of creation because he created all things. Creation is at its best, its most satisfied, when it is bearing witness to the God who made it. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the, The beauty of the world around us, friends, is a silent sermon. It is silent praise. To the glory of the God who made it all. Paul talks in Romans chapter 8 about how creation is suffering because of the curse of our sin. If you want the real cause of climate disasters, there it is. Uh, the, the, the sin that we have brought into the world affects everything, even the natural world. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that creation is longing and groaning and waiting for the moment when Christ returns and makes all things new. 
so that the mountains and the trees and everything in them gives unceasing worship to the one seated on the throne. But then there's another group of people worshipping before the throne. If you look at verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. There's been a lot of ink spilled, a lot of speculation about who exactly these elders are, who they represent. I think the best answer is that these 24 (coughs) 24 figures represent the whole church, past, present, and future. Uh, In the Old Testament, God's people were represented by the the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, In the New Testament age, were, were represented, if you like, by the 12 apostles of Jesus. So 12 and 12, 24 the whole church, past, present, and future. And notice, friends, these 24 elders have their own thrones, and they're dressed in white, and they're wearing crowns. Again, this is all symbolic picture language. But all of those things, friends, the thrones, the white clothes, and the crowns, those are symbols for us of the fact that Christ will reward his followers. These are the rewards that his people receive in heaven. Revelation 3 verse 11 says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. These are the things that Jesus promised to the churches that he wrote to in chapters 2 to 3. A throne, a crown, white garments. Symbols of our place in heaven. Symbols of being perfected and brought into God's presence and reigning with Christ forever. But notice what these 24 elders are doing with their crowns. Verse 10. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So what do the elders do with these wonderful crowns that they've been given as their reward? They take their crowns off and they leave them at the feet of the one seated on the throne. And they say, whatever we have, it's all come from you. You are worthy of all that we have. You're worthy of all worship. Whatever you've given to us, even our rewards, they belong at your feet. Friends, this is wholehearted worship. This is gladly giving all that we have, whether in our, in our worship, our praise, our prayers, our, our commitment to God's Word, or in our service, our, our giving generously to the needs of the church or to, to other needy missions, our giving ourselves out for the work of God, for the comfort of others, for the, for the good of others, whatever it may be, this is glad surrender of everything that we have, all our might, all our being, all that we have, in the worship of our glorious God. A generation ago, A.W. Tozer said, worship is the missing jewel in modern evangelicalism. If that was true a generation ago, it's certainly true today. Quite simply, friends, our view of God is far too small. And I would include even Reformed Christians in that. Let this throne in Revelation chapter 4, 
Let the glory and the sovereignty and the judgment and the salvation of God, friends, let it fuel your worship. Let's not be confining God to the gaps in our lives that we are able to squeeze him into. I'm feeling a bit down. I need a verse for the day to pick me up. So we think about God then. Or we give him the hour or two of worship on the Lord's day. But the rest of the week, I can get on with looking after myself. I've got my work and my family and my entertainment and my hobbies under my control. And God doesn't get a second thought. Friends, knowing about this throne and the one seated on the, on the throne should fuel in us daily, fervent, passionate worship, prayer, praise, contemplation of God's word. And shouldn't it especially inform our worship together on the Lord's day? Here we have another reminder as we were considering a few weeks ago that what we do when we gather for worship on earth is the same thing being done in heaven. Vodi Bauckham says there is a, a synergy between the worship of heaven and the worship of earth. One day in seven, he says, we're doing something heavenly, something supremely worthwhile. No one is more deserving of our thoughts, our love, our service than the one seated on heaven's throne. The words of verse 11, worthy are you. Those are deliberately, very deliberately chosen words. Because in, in those days, in, in the day in which John first received revelation, uh, they were the words that were sung, or the words that were declared, rather, when a Roman emperor came into your city. If the, Roman emperor, if the Roman emperor was coming to visit your city, they opened up the gates and they said, Worthy are you, Caesar. And the message here is that there is no one more worthy than the one on the throne. There's no athlete more worthy. There's no musician more worthy. There's no social media influencer more worthy of your interest and your effort and your praise than the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, let, let this throne and all that we've seen of this throne today, let it change your perspective this week. As you travel to your workplace this week, think about the throne. As you gather around your kitchen table or your living room for family worship, think about the throne. As you hear the world heaping up empty praise for idols, think about the throne. As you weigh up tough decisions or carry heavy burdens of one kind or another, think about the throne. And as we gather at our appointed times for worship, may we think about the throne. And like those elders and creatures in heaven, may we give up wholehearted worship to God, the one seated on this throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Amen.